As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The producers of this podcast recognise the traditional owners of the land on which it's recorded. They pay respect to the Aboriginal elders past, present and those emerging. The following podcast contains content of a graphic, violent nature and is not suitable for children. The surface that was created for the consumption of the rest of Australia was that it was this hokey-pokey state which was run by this hillbilly and it should never be taken seriously. That's exactly the card they wanted to play. And behind the scenes of that joke facade, and Queensland was a national joke for many, many years, 
behind the curtains, there was a hell of a lot of corrupt activity going on. I'm delighted to tell you that our guest this week is Brisbane-based journalist and author Matthew Condon. I've been a big fan of Matthew's for around a decade now, since I read all three of his meticulously researched books about the history of corruption in the Queensland police force and state government. Individually, they are Jackson Jokers, Three Crooked Kings and All Fall Down. And collectively, they've become known as the Three Crooked Kings Trilogy. I was in my early teens when, in 1987, an episode of Four Corners entitled The Moonlight State aired serious accusations about Queensland Police that led to an inquiry presided over by Tony Fitzgerald QC. The Fitzgerald Inquiry lasted for a full two years. The Commission's findings led to custodial sentences for three former senior ministers in the Queensland State Government and for the Police Commissioner, Terence Lewis, formerly Sir Terence Lewis, who also lost his knighthood in the fracas. Joe Bjorki-Peterson, formerly Sir Joe, who is still the state's longest sitting Premier at 19 years in the job, was sacked and tried for perjury. His case ended in a mistrial, and the jury foreman was later identified as a former member of the Friends of Joe movement. A subsequent inquiry found the jury selection had been manipulated by ex-Queensland police officers. Matthew Condon is as fascinated today as he's ever been by Queensland's history of corruption, and we'll sink our teeth into that soon. It really is the kind of stuff you'd think was over the top if it was in a movie, but it's all very, very true. Matthew is a senior reporter for The Australian and is also assisting Hedley Thomas on the new podcast, The Teacher's Trial. In case you don't know, Chris Dawson is finally standing trial in the New South Wales Supreme Court, where he's pleaded not guilty to the murder of his first wife, Lynette Dawson, who vanished from their home in Gilwinga Drive, Bayview, in Sydney's Northern Beaches in 1982. The trial has already heard some bombshell evidence from witnesses who've never come forward before, and you can hear the latest every week on the teacher's trial from Matthew Condon, who's in court every day watching proceedings. It's quite a fascinating thing to do, to actually do a weekly podcast on a a living, active trial um, and all the hoops and barriers you have to negotiate to do that. But, um, yeah, it's been absolutely full-on recording uh, every day at the crack of dawn in terms of um, considering the previous day's evidence. And then there's, you know, geniuses like Headley and um, Slade Gibson who piece it all together and release it to the world. Yeah, because you're reporting on breaking news. I mean, already, you know, day by day, witnesses are bringing out evidence that we've never heard, certainly not on the podcast that was out a couple of years ago, but stuff that's never been reported. It's amazing. Yeah, that's right. And I think, you know, to, to release the podcast at the uh, on sort of Friday evening at the end of a week's evidence, it's a great way for people who can't read the news every day or, or catch up with this living, breathing trial. They can just put on the podcast for an hour, hour and a half, and it gives them a summation of all the evidence from that week, and then they can move on to the next week. I'm so glad you're doing a podcast about your Queensland crime passion, which is um, has been the subject of a lot of your work, and that's when I first discovered you, years and years ago when I was looking around for some true crime to read, as I often am, mm. uh, and I found the books that you had written on the corruption in the Queensland police force and government, but it became a big news story in the 80s when I was a teenager and that's when the uh, Fitzgerald inquiry came about and I was 
absolutely transfixed and fascinated. And that's when my politics were born. Mm. And, um, you know, lots of things that have become integral to my entire personality sort of were cracked open, I reckon. And so to read your books was incredible because you gave it so much more background and so much more life for me, including the fact that, I mean, you went so far back into history, into the context of how this level of corruption could come to be in the state of Queensland. Yes, that's right. I mean, I'm fascinated to hear that, um, and there are many people like you that, that the Fitzgerald Inquiry was a transformative moment in their lives. It's one. Of, yeah. it, it was an, an incredible um, seismic moment in Queensland history. I, I came to the story, I knew the story, of course, as a journalist and a Queenslander, but I came to the story full throttle when I was given the opportunity to sit down with Terence Murray Lewis, the former corrupt police commissioner, in 2010. It, it happened by chance through a friend of mutual friend of ours. So I sat down with Terry Lewis on the 1st of February 2010 in his uh, North, North Brisbane suburban house. And that turned into almost three years of interviews with Lewis. I, I felt I couldn't extricate myself from it because this was actual history. And even though he had a story that was, uh, in my view, a far cry from what actually happened, uh, I would have to scuttle away after our interviews and actually try and verify that moment that he was talking about. Uh, And often, more often than not, I verified that, in fact, he had veered severely from the truth. So, but it was the basis for those books. Yeah, for someone, you know, from my background, Terry Lewis was one of the, I would say, top three villains of the piece, it seems to me in my memory, and it seemed to me uh, at the time, in terms of the the old white guys who were running the state, who were proven to be incredibly corrupt. They, they were liars. They were cheats. They were scoundrels. Mm. They were untouchable. They seemed untouchable at the time. And every grown-up I knew was shocked and yet shocked that they were brought to justice, that that they were defeated because they. I remember my parents every night would watch the news and say to each other, they'll never get them, they'll never mm. get them, they'll never get them. And they were um, Joby Occupiters and the Premier of Queensland, Terence Lewis, the Chief of Police, and Russ Hins. Mm. What, what was Russ Hins? I can't even remember what his station in life was, but he was this enormous figure physically and also his, his spirit and his personality was huge and he seemed indomitable, un, unbeatable. Well, he was called the minister for everything because he, he, yeah. had, he had all of those crucial portfolios. If you're corrupt, you, you want to be in control of the police force. So he was the police minister. Ah. Uh, he was the racing minister. So you tap into <laughs> horse racing and gambling. And, um, you know, these guys had it all sorted beautifully for decades. And it was the same with the police. The, this system that they had developed from uh, at least the 1950s, uh, baton changes uh, generationally happened and they kept this corrupt system running immaculately until, and I've discussed this many times with Chris Masters and his extraordinary Four Corners report, The Moonlight State. Um, He said the only reason it got traction was because a a perfect, perfect storm occurred in May 1987 when the program went to air. And that was that Bielke Peterson was by chance out of the country and Bill Gunn was acting premier. uh, And you had this, this incredible report of crime and corruption in Queensland. The National Crime Authority began a nationwide investigation of organised crime, codenamed Operation Vigilantes. 
The NCA needed the permission of all state governments before it could proceed. Some states agreed immediately, but Queensland only agreed after several months and a detailed NCA briefing. Tonight's program may give some clue as to why certain people in the Sunshine State, particularly in its police force, could be reluctant to have outside investigators probing their patch. The House of Cards fell really swiftly. And um, Lewis, of course, went to jail. Uh, Bielke Peterson avoided prison. Uh, we won't go into that because it's long and boring, but he, he got away with it. And... Um, you know, a couple of ministers went to jail. But, um, I mean, the overall impact was it changed Queensland history forever. Bjorki Peterson pulled a bit of a, um, which was the Russian leader who wouldn't leave the office that time? I can't remember. Was it? Um, Khrushchev? No, no, it was the one after um, Gorbachev, you know, the, oh, the bear. Um, Boris Yeltsin. <laughs> it might have been Yeltsin. <laughs> you know, because, yeah, Bjorki Peterson pulled one of those. He sat up in his office, I remember, in, uh, was it Roma Street in Brisbane? It was hilarious. After he'd been deposed and all of that. Like, I mean, he didn't go to jail, but he was very, very elderly and um you know he died not long afterwards but he he was effective very very humiliated wasn't he 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 was defeated well he couldn't comprehend no that he'd lost power and it, there's a hilarious story verified by many people that he locked himself into his office the premier's office yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um in the queensland state government executive building and Russ Hins actually lowered himself to the doorknob with the keyhole huh. and said, you know, knocking on the door and saying, Joe, mate, Joe, it's all over. It's time to come out. I mean, good God. That's actually very compassionate of Russ. And I don't, I'm not meaning this to be a joke, but genuinely, Russ had that many bionic joints in his body. Like, genuinely, I mean, that's, that was, I'm almost touched at the compassion that Russ showed in doing that. Oh, yes. But people, people can't believe, I mean, today people look back and they simply still are astonished mm. that it actually all happened at all. I mean, it's quite, mm. uh, and having researched this story now since that moment I sat down with Terry Lewis in 2010, there is still stuff that I'm digging out and finding out that that just blows me away even all these years later. I mean, it's astonishing. You remember that there was never a suggestion that anyone would vote against the nationals. They were not even liberals, Emily. I'm talking nationals. nationals. <laughs> no, exactly. no, one, no one in Queensland considered for a moment that Joe wouldn't be Premier or that it, anything would change. No one thought about voting differently. Nobody thought about things being different in Queensland by that time, did they? And they were in power for decades, weren't they? Yes, yeah, they were. Matt, Matt, I'm a Melbourneian born and bred, so my recollections are of Joe Bialki Peterson and Flo in like the Woman's Weekly, the Pumpkin Scones recipe, Terry Lewis being on TV, like he yes. was a police chief for a long time, wasn't he? Yes, he was He was chief for almost 11 years. Bialki Peterson was in there for uh, over 18 years, but there had been 10 years of, Nash, of, of conservative government before Joe. So you're going back to the 1950s uh, mm. where they had three decades of um, unstoppable power. And, you know, you wonder why corrupt roots developed. I mean, it, there it is right there. The surface that was created for the consumption of the rest of Australia was that it was this hokey pokey state, which was run by this hillbilly, and it should never be taken seriously. That's exactly the card they wanted to play. And behind the scenes of that joke facade, and Queensland was a national joke for many, many years, Behind the curtains, 
there was a hell of a lot of corrupt activity going on. Tell us about it. Tell us about where it starts from your perspective about Queensland in the 1950s. And we know that on the surface it's all about it being this kind of Christian, conservative, conservative place. What's really what's going on in the underbelly, as it were, of Queensland in the 50s? Look, you know, human nature being what it is, Queensland ha- had its percentage of uh, illegal uh, brothels, um, gambling, uh, sex parties, it had it all. It just didn't stop at the border. Queensland, you know, people are people. Um, but it was just, it just had a prettier um, layer of wallpaper over the top of it. Very straight, very Christian, very God-fearing. Uh, but, but a particular character strode out of the shadows in the 1950s, and his name was Francis Eric Bischoff. Now, Bischoff had been a police officer from the 1920s. He was from Toowoomba, I think you, someone there knows Toowoomba very well. I sure do. <laughs> <laughs> He's one of my people. <laughs> Bischoff from uh, just a dairy farm outside of Toowoomba, joined the police force, ended up a very senior detective in Brisbane during wartime and learned his corrupt craft during the wartime period, whereby there was petrol rationing, uh, there were Americans uh, had taken over Brisbane, there were brothels, gambling you know, black market goods. This is where Bischoff honed his skills, uh, became a detective in the 1950s and marched into into power and into the office of the commissioner in uh, the late 1950s. Now, he was an, a compulsive gambler, a very big man, intimidating, and he very quickly realised from his wartime experience that there was a hell of a lot of money that could be made tapping sex workers in uh, the city's brothels, you know, uh, uh, underground casinos, gambling, SP bookmaking. But what were you told? Were you told that you would be raided if you didn't pay the 70%? Yeah, we were told it would be extremely, you know, extremely difficult to operate, you know, with, without police protection, you know, without um, protection of the police. That's what we were told. This money would, would go to Hector and Hector would take his percentage and the rest would be given spread among the boys of the Queensland Police Force. And he used his position immediately to feather his own nest, but he needed some young guns on the ground and that this was this mythical rat pack um, that he developed and that was Tony Murphy, Glenn Hallahan and, of course, Terry Lewis. From, what, from the names that I'm hearing, by the way, I'm assuming, were they all Catholic? Well, it depends on who was commissioner. So if the commissioner was well, that's, a yes, Mason... Yes, that's what I'm wondering. Cause I, oh, yes, because I know that that was the go in Victoria. So I was wondering if that was, yeah, that was the go Oh, yeah, there. that was very strong too in Queensland. So if you're a Mason, if the commissioner was a Mason, then you, you, you may as well be a Mason. And then if the commissioner became, was a Catholic, then you better pretty quickly become a Catholic. So, yeah. that, I mean, you know, Lewis was, he, and others... Um, had this very fluid relationship uh, with religion and belief and worship. It, I mean, it had to suit the times. Otherwise, you never got anywhere in the in the yeah. force, you know. And, um, you know, when, when Bischoff was commissioner, his deputy was a Catholic and they hated each other. Yeah. And there were attempts by the deputy to, to plot to bring down Bischoff. But he established this system of corruption called the joke Mm. Um, there was also a joke in New South Wales. I have no doubt there was a joke in Victoria, but it was, um, you know, supplementary money from these various shadowy areas in life. And um, 
they made it an, an art form. Now, you're talking about voting before. So mm. I've learned through my research over the years, of course, that there was, there was infinite examples of police pressure on big businesses employing a lot of people to essentially secure the National Party vote. So there would be, for example, and I've heard this firsthand evidence from people to say that when the election came around, they had a, a little note was slipped into their pay packet leading up to the election day, and they were informed if they did not vote national, don't come back to work on Monday. So you have all of these forces, invisible forces at play, uh, securing these great political moments. And I always think, Matt, of when I think about police corruption, I think of, you know, officers starting their career and they're wanting to do the right thing and very quickly they have to, you know, toe the line or become ostracised and it could be quite dangerous. I think we saw that with the New South Wales police stuff. Is that the case with cops entering the Queensland police or was it known it could be a bit of a rort so people joined for that reason? Well, uh, I can simplify that um, with one anecdote that was given to me by a young uh, police constable in his first months on the job. Um, so... He, he was driving around with mobile patrols with a, sen a senior officer with him. And the, the senior officer said, look, we just have to go over to this, um, th this address over in South Brisbane. Uh, over they went and th the senior officer said, look, young fella, can you just hop out, go in there. So there's, a, there's a little um, package I have to pick up. The officer, young constable went in, picked the package up and gave it to the senior officer. And the senior officer said, well, there it is, you're in. You're in the system now because that's yes. that's yep. a, that's oh. uh, that's cash. It's going to me and the boys, and you're a part of it. Sorry, but oh. that's it. So there were cases of that. There were cases of officers that stood up for their rights and their morals. They were treated horrendously. Great careers thwarted from the beginning, and you know the best of a generation lost because they couldn't work. Uh, in a system so riven with corruption. They could simply couldn't do it. Finding a policeman who would open the shutters on the licensing branch at one time seemed an impossibility. But Nigel Powell, who has now resigned from the force, agreed to talk. There's a, a degree of pressure on police to conform to the role of a policeman, but certainly to supporting your mates, etc., etc. What happens if you swim against the tide then? Well, you won't be spoken to, you won't be privy to conversations that contain interesting information, you'll be left out. There was a time there at the licensing branch where for several weeks the most I could get out of most people in the licensing branch was a, a, a hello, a goodbye. Um, you can't be seen to be going against what is the accepted thing. I remember reading a, a stat in one of your books that I found amazing too about the number of police in those days who had finished high school was very, very low, even into the sort of the 70s, wasn't it? Absolutely true. Well, until Ray Whitrod, the commissioner Ray Whitrod came in, he was what they called a Mexican. He was an outsider. He wasn't from Queensland, Ray. Uh, you couldn't trust him. He was from a, originally from Adelaide, uh, but a very highly educated and qualified man. And, you know, up until that point, I mean, Terry Lewis left school when he was 12, Yep. Um, and went on to become the commissioner of police for uh, 11 years. Mm. So, uh, you know, an education was a mark 
against you. It was, you know, you thought you were better than everybody else if you had an actual education. Uh, But Whitrod changed that and, um, you know, you had to have qualifications um, even at a tertiary level. Uh, he tried to bring more, uh, infinitely more women into the force to get some equity to, to sort of break down the chronic misogyny uh, that had developed certainly under Bischoff as well in the in the 1960s and into 1970s. So, I mean, he was pushing it uphill from day one, and then of course there was the incredible story which probably the rest of Australia has either forgotten about or didn't know about, and that was the National Hotel Inquiry in. Um, 1963-64. So that that was the first ever Royal Commission into Police Misconduct under Frank Bischoff's uh, watch as commissioner into the activities uh, in a hotel in Brisbane called The National. Now, everybody in Brisbane, including the school kids, knew that there were uh, sex workers working out of The National for as long as they could remember. And um, a great politician called Colin Bennett, very, very honest and wonderful man, um, he raised this issue in Parliament in, in 1963 and basically said, you know, what is Frank Bischoff and his boys doing drinking freely and at will at the National Hotel while uh, sex workers are hanging out the windows upstairs? What is going on here with the police force? Shouldn't they be enforcing the law? And reluctantly, the, the conservative government of the day uh, recommended a royal commission. And a, a handful of witnesses came forward to offer evidence that, in fact, there was police corruption and sex workers working out of there. And of course, the job of primarily Tony Murphy and Glenn Hallahan, two of the Rat Pack, was to utterly destroy Mm. Uh, the credibility of these witnesses. John Comlozzi, who was a night porter at the hotel, he gave evidence about corruption, uh, vice, etc. Comlozzi and his family were run out of Queensland. He had death threats and they left Queensland and went back to Europe before Justice Gibbs's final report was even uh, finished. So, I mean, the incredible thing is, and, and via Facebook, etc. I'm still in touch with John Comlozzi's son, Fred Comlozzi, who was a young boy in Brisbane in the late 50s and early 60s, loving life in Brisbane. And all of a sudden, the family had to pack up and go back to Europe because of the oh. threats from these corrupt police. And he still, Fred still laments the loss of that beautiful childhood and adulthood he could have had. So still the impacts of these things still ripple through generations. God. So what was the findings of the report? Were there, did, they, did the judge find any corruption at all? Uh, Justice Gibbs found absolutely not a scintilla of evidence wow. uh, of corrupt behaviour by police. Nothing. Matthew, my awareness about... Um, the reporting of corruption in Queensland comes from Phil Dickey's book, The Road to Fitzgerald, yes. and he worked on the Courier-Mail, I believe, and did some reporting, and then Chris Masters' Four Corners report, The Moonlight State. Was there many attempts in the decades before, even years before, to report on this, and why did it start to brew in the 1980s and, and really start to come out? That's an absolutely brilliant question. Um I spoke to a lot of old journalists who were police roundsmen, like the wonderful Ken Blanche, who passed away only fairly recently, and there were others who 
uh, were graced with um, the friendship of Frank Bischoff. And, for example, Bischoff, when the the office of the commissioner was of the CIB was actually in the centre of Brisbane City. Bischoff would ring up, say, Ken Blanche and say, Kenny, come up to the office. I've got, I've got a story for you. And so they had this incredibly chummy relationship. You cannot blame these reporters with the benefit of hindsight and history. If, if they reported a single story against this regime, that was the end of their careers. So oh, yeah. uh, they had to try and live with it and balance with it and, um, they had a terrible time under this enormous shadow. And the ratbag media, I mean, I was even sort of old enough to to know about the the green left and, you know, those kinds of um, of papers and the alternative radio stations, Triple Z and people like that in Brisbane. And, I mean, they'd get raided. They'd get raided. Yeah, they'd get absolutely, bashed. Absolutely. They'd get literally intimidated. I mean, the courage of those people, Four Triple Z, the Cane Toad yeah. Times. There, there yeah. were were sort of underground publications that that rippled through, um, certainly in the seventies and into the eighties. In nineteen eighty two, there was a very courageous attempt again by the ABC to expose corruption at the highest levels. Uh, mm. uh, you might remember, as a Queenslander, that the uh, defamation laws were used like a mm. like, like a hot knife through butter. At any drop of the hat, someone would be suing someone else for defamation in the courts, and usually they won. Um, yeah. and, it, and it prevented a lot of genuine reporting in, in the way that the Bjorki-Peterson government wielded that um, option. And um, Alan Hall from the ABC tried to do something in '82. It didn't, in a sense, get it, get traction in, t- in terms of bringing down the regime. But what it did was it probably propelled one of the Rat Packers, Tony Murphy, towards retirement, which was not a bad thing at the time, breaking up to a degree the Rat Pack in the early 80s. Uh, but it was a forerunner to the Moonlight State. That's interesting because there was that sense of, um, you know, them being unbeatable of, of, look, there's no point. Because even going back to that, the sex workers stuff, and as you were saying, having a Royal Commission into um, corruption and finding no evidence of corruption and saying, you know, there are no sex workers in this hotel when everyone knows there are. I mean, I remember even on that topic, everybody knew that where the sex workers were in every city and town in the state and everybody knew it was illegal and everybody knew the police were literally standing looking at it. So it's issues like that that tell it, that instruct the community yes. uh, as to what's happening and, th- and that there's no point in speaking out about it, there's no point in thinking about it. You know, that's in and of itself intimidating, isn't yes, it? Yes, absolutely. And it, and it becomes almost like a virus through the community whereby you shrug your shoulders and say, well, what's, what is the point? Why, why would I ruin my life and the life of my yeah. family? Um, by doing this. So, yes, it becomes self It says to you, oh, I get it. I get it. I get what's going on here. I get that the laws and the rules, the rule of law isn't real here. There's something else going on here. I don't really know what it is, but I know it's none of my business and I just need to stay out of it. I've spoken to a detective sergeant who says that to survive in this place, you have to discover neutral territory where you see no evil and hear no evil, particularly if it's evil within And I guess the final word should go to a retired senior policeman who says, what's the point? I spent my whole career bashing my head against a brick wall. It made no difference. The public really don't care anyway. And in the end, the crooks win. 
Coming up on Australian True Crime, author and journalist Matthew Condon introduces us to a couple of formidable women who gave some of Queensland's most powerful men a run for their money. You're listening to Australian True Crime, recorded at a Hub Australia media studio. Every Hub Australia co-working space provides a fully equipped media studio where you can create professional content just like Australian True Crime. Go to hubaustralia.com to choose the flexible workspace that's right for you. Thank you to our patrons Renee, Bridie Taylor, Karen Wilson, Derek Salt, Jacqueline Gordon, Tessa Slade, Jenny C, Caitlin Camp, Joe Bryan and KS. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. Our guest today is Matthew Condon, journalist and author of the Three Kings trilogy about the extraordinary history of corruption in Queensland's police and state government leading up to the Fitzgerald inquiry in the late 80s. There's a link in the show notes so you can buy those books. There's seemingly no end of characters for Matthew to discover and learn more about in the course of his research. And lately, he's become very invested in the women's stories. You know, I have been a bit, um, not obsessed over the years, but perennially fascinated with Shirley Briffman. She, of course, is one of the stars of, of, you know, I've done this uh, new podcast with the ABC called um, Dig Sirens Are Coming. Yeah. Uh, It's a six-part podcast that, 
looks at this entire system of corruption from the 1950s through to the 80s and 90s from the perspective of the women, of the sex Mm, workers. Wonderful. Gosh, because I was just thinking, it seems like every one of these stories, certainly in Australia, has a woman like Shirley, doesn't it? Well, it's true. And, you know, we we and the ABC, we were discussing um, prior um, to getting to work on this podcast, it was a fact that the that these women's voices had been lost and forgotten. Yeah. Uh, not that they were even heard fully at the time. That's another no, point. But, but these men, they can't make money. They can't make the money they are making without the sex industry. And the sex industry can't thrive without these strong women to to run the industry, to make it work. And so there always seems to be at least one pivotal woman who can really mix it up with the men, who is a great businesswoman, a great character. And generally, she tends to pay the ultimate price. You're 100% correct also in that this system couldn't work without the women. Yeah. Uh, They were inside the machine. They generated the cash. Um, The whole thing largely rested on their shoulders. Um, And yet their voices have been lost to history. So we made a decision that we would look at four pivotal women uh, in, a, in a strange way, the baton being passed on from, for example, Shirley Briffman, beginning in the late 1950s uh, and extending through a wonderful former sex worker, Dorothy Edith Knight, who's become a great friend of mine and is now in her early 80s. She, oh. she was working the game in the 60s and 70s and risked her life to bring down one of the Rat Pack, which we can discuss Wow. Uh, then we moved on to, of course, Simone Vogel, who disappeared in 1977 and has never been seen or heard from again because she dared to stand up. Uh, and then Catherine James, who um, gave evidence at the Fitzgerald inquiry, precipitated the fall of many corrupt police. And to this very day, as we speak, is living under an assumed identity uh, in Queensland. So, she, and And we're talking... What are we talking now? 35 years after the Fitzgerald inquiry, this woman still has to live under uh, another identity to protect her safety. So it's an extraordinary story. But it all begins, yes, with Shirley, who who essentially was born and raised in Atherton in far north Queensland, went to Cairns when she was uh, in her late teens and met a man called Sonny Briffman, who was uh, the licensee of of a hotel in Cairns. They hooked up. Shirley fell pregnant with her first child, Mary Ann Briffman, and moved to Brisbane in about 1958. And Shirley went to work at the Kalani um, brothel in South Brisbane. And it was through her work in Kalani that, of course, she bumped into Bischoff's henchmen, Murphy, Hallahan, and Lewis, and a relationship then began with those corrupt officers. She was, uh, quote, protected by these police in exchange for the kickbacks. Uh, protected meant she, she wouldn't be ha- charged and face the courts. That, that was true to up, up until the early 1970s. But she went to Sydney uh, while the dust settled on the National Hotel Royal Commission. And you've got to bear in mind that these police, 
they had survived a royal commission. <laughs> yeah. Now, when you do that, unscathed, you 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 grow one foot taller. You become emboldened. You learn from your mistakes, and you learn to sharpen the pencil for the next hit that might come. So this strengthened them. It didn't weaken them. And Shirley went to Sydney and, be- and became a, a smash hit in Sydney. She was she was the biggest vice queen in Sydney <laughs> by, say, 1968-69, when she started getting some publicity, unwanted publicity, of course, by corrupt police. But she was suddenly turning up in, in the afternoon newspapers, Sydney's vice queen, Shirley Briffman, and all of this and that. And, um, you know, she had to... She had to pull her head in or there was going to be strife and there was strife. I bet. I bet. Gosh, how f- oh, now I'm frightened. Because who, who who was rocking around Sydney in those days? Was it uh, – it wasn't Roger the Dodgy yet, was it? Uh, he was He was, He was. was in the blossom of youth at that point, Ooh, but he was certainly okay. on the scene in the late 1960s. Um, and the Lenny McPhersons, the George Freemans, um, oh, in, okay. indeed, the Stuart John Regan, the gangster, and, uh, um, you know, it was all happening in Sydney in the – in the 60s and into the early 70s. And um, there was a situation with Shirley where she was charged with procuring her own daughter for the purposes of prostitution. <sighs> oh, dear. Um, and she couldn't understand how she was charged. Well, what do you mean? I've been paying you guys off for, thir- for 12 or 13 years. What do you mean I'm charged? So she goes to jail. There's a complication over her bail so she's held in prison for longer than she'd never been in prison before. When she got out, she made a decision. She said, that's it. I'm going to blow the whistle. And she did on the popular ABC program of the day, This Day Tonight. She went on air and was interviewed by reporter Gerald Stone and blew the whistle and, in effect, signed her own death warrant. This is giving me Sally Ann Huckstep yes, vibes. Yes, I was thinking yeah. that Sally Ann Huckstep. Mm. This is early Huckstep. The same patterns mm. repeat themselves over and over. Yeah. Even I read that Chris Masters had to have an AFP officer accompany him everywhere mm. when that program came out because they were actually really concerned that the threat to him was police and oh. they could kill him or do well, something. Uh, there was certainly, um, on one hand, viable concerns for his physical safety and on the other hand, evidence was produced later that, in fact, Queensland police were trying to set him up uh, on, a, on a charge of um, being with a, an underage teenage boy. No. I mean, these are the lengths that they oh went to. And, of course, he, you know, Masters needed that protection. Doesn't that make you wonder how many people they did successfully set up on things over the years? We, yeah. we could talk about that for about a day and a half without a break. Oh, God. Yes. So, um, so Masters had to be protected. <sighs> thank God he was. And um, there were no lengths that they would not go to. It's quite, it's quite eye-popping. Uh, uh, that, I mean, I, sh- I don't know why I'm shocked, but I, I am. I- I'm stunned. So, gosh, so what happened to Shirley then? She's done her interview, um, I-, I guess. And did people believe her? Because even when Sally Ann spoke out decades later, um, people said, oh, she's talking bullshit. She's a drug addict prostitute. Who would That's believe it. her? That's exactly right. Uh, they were, they were women, uh, immoral women. Yeah. Um, who on earth would believe a sex worker yeah. and, and the drugs of course. But so Shirley came back to Brisbane and she was put in a safe house and she was, uh, interviewed at length from about July, 1971, 
through to no- October, November 1971. And she was interviewed by Queensland and New South Wales police about the allegations she aired on national TV. Now, the transcripts of her interviews are, are lengthy. I've got a copy. They're about 100, 110 pages of very tight typed script. And she embellishes even further and elaborates further on her allegations that she made on TV. And she's naming names and corrupt police and who she's paying off here, there and everywhere. And, you know, it's, she's in a very, very dangerous position. So out of her evidence, Tony Murphy, the so-called member of the Rat Pack, was charged with perjury because Shirley said, well, when I was on the stand at the National Hotel in 1963-64, the night before I gave evidence, I was actually, you know, having a drink and t- and Tony and Glenn Hallahan coached me about what to say in the witness stand the next day. And she said, not only, not only did they tell me what to say, they gave me the questions. Mm, so you can now see uh, that the, yeah. the, the Royal Commission itself was compromised on mm. a very deep level. So Murphy was charged with perjury and uh, his case was due to come up in April 1972, and Shirley Briffman was found dead of an alleged drug overdose um, in early March 1972. Oh, my gosh. Oh, God. I'm, I'm so glad you're covering the stories of the women, Matt. It's so important, and, and women do get forgotten, don't they, in, in these kind of stories of history and, and politics. Yes, and yeah. Sh- you're looking at Shirley. Um, you look at Shirley today, and you know she was, as, as you've intimated, uh, ignored and um, and cast off when she was making these allegations. And that, that she's a liar, and she's making this all up. It's it's only now, and we're talking fifty years. It's fifty years this year that she died. Uh, it's only now that you know historians and people that are interested in this field are going. Well, hang on a sec. You remember when Shirley said that? That sort of makes sense now. You know, when the dots oh, yeah. are starting mm-hmm. to come together after half a century. And, um, you know, I have no no doubt at all that she was telling the truth to the best of her ability. And she paid the ultimate price and that was her life. So, um, I mean, I you know, I, I've been fascinated with her. I've been inside the safe house. I've stood in the room where Shirley Briffman died Um I, you know, I've spoken to police who were there on on the day when the body was discovered by her young children. Oh, uh, no. it, it is an, a phenomenal story, a uh, tragic story. Um, but then, you know, as Sirens Are Coming indicates, that, that, that there's the story of Dorothy Edith Knight. I mean, her story as a sex worker is incredible. She, she at the same time Shirley was giving, was was singing like a canary to police in Brisbane, Dorothy Edith Knight um, was seconded to entrap another member of the Rat Pack, and that's Glenn Hallahan. Now, she'd been paying him off for years. She'd worked out of the National Hotel, just like Shirley, and Whitrod's, Ray Whitrod's crack, uh, honest crime team decided, well, we've got Murphy on perjury, let's get rid of Hallahan as well. So they rig up the first uh, wire ever worn by anyone in a police operation in Queensland to Dorothy. And she meets uh, with him in New Farm Park in in Brisbane at the end of 1971. 
And an incredible scene, just picture this, there's a caravan parked at the edge of the park and it's full of police with binoculars and cameras and and then throughout the park is suddenly all of these gardeners and hedge clippers and rose clippers and uh, people pruning trees, they're all undercover cops waiting for this one moment where Dorothy hands the cash to Hallahan and he pops it in his pocket. That's the moment when they know they've got him. He finally did that. He was arrested and charged with corruption. Um, Dorothy fainted um, because the stress was so enormous. And um, of course, it goes to trial the following year and the whole case falls apart. They say that the tape uh, from the wire is not admissible and Hallahan ends up getting charged with the tiniest of charges about not keeping his police diary in order or something. It's ridiculous. (sighs) But he ultimately does resign out of that. He doesn't stop his corruption but he does resign from the police force. But Dorothy's life then was on the line. Yeah, of course. I mean, she survived it, but she suffered enormous health problems related Mm. to that incident in 1971 to this day. And uh, only recently for the podcast for the ABC, we went together and sat on the park bench as close to the original as possible in New Farm Park where that incredible sting happened Uh, 50 years before, and she was shaky. She said she hadn't been back to the park since the incident. Um, She was nervous. Uh, All of those old memories came rushing back to her, but but she's one of the great characters and one of the few survivors, the one that tried to say something and do something and do the right thing and paid the price, but thankfully she's still with us. And we we all know this, we all understand this. The thing, and with Sirens Are Coming, uh, proved it literally. The thing... Um, about these old stories is we have to capture the memories of people while they're still with us. Yes, And uh, yeah. when I was looking into the investigation into the disappearance of Simone Vogel in mm. 1977, I was lucky enough to meet a wonderful man called Keith, Keith Smith, who was the first detective on the Simone Vogel case in 1977 mm. um, and still thought about that case every day of his life, even into retirement. And Keith passed away two weeks before... Um, we finished up with the podcast. So I managed yeah. to capture him and got his wonderful memories and then he was gone, which is a great sadness. But, you know, once they, these people go, they're gone and their stories go with them. Absolutely. Well, let's dedicate this episode to yeah. the memory of Tracy Connolly, who's a sex worker in St Kilda, who was murdered oh, maybe oh, two months after Jill Maher. Mm. And her murder is still unsolved. And it was no 30,000 people march for Tracy And, you know, Jill's husband, lovely husband Tom, has written about Tracy a number of times and talked a lot about this kind of issue, about about other victims and the kinds of victims who don't fit the mould of, you know, um, the victim that we give a lot of attention to. So hopefully one day Tracy's murder will be solved for her family. Well, and yes, it's I mean, time to think about this sort of stuff. The the, the important issue is to never forget, and we sh- and sh- yeah. she should be never forgotten. Of course, and, and her case should be brought up time and time again. Yeah, uh, over the months, over the years, so mm. that there that the hope is still alive that there will be justice for her. So I guess. I'm sure I'm not the only person wondering where are we at now? I mean, you know, we, we've only just had another royal commission here in Victoria that's shocked the socks off a lot of people about what was happening in the late 90s and early 2000s. And all of this stuff, it's, I think it's foolhardy to, to imagine that it's all 
far in the past. Do you think, where are we right now in, in Australia in terms of our policing and in terms of our integrity policing? Look, I, I, think, I think it's so overdue. We need a national ICAC. There's absolutely no question about that. And I think mm. that the new Prime Minister has indicated that that will happen. Uh, a lot of people are looking forward to that, I think. Yeah, it's fascinating because, you know, just a few weeks ago before the election, of course, the coalition and certainly the former prime minister was saying, no, no one cares about that. Real Australians don't care about that. That's just a, a Canberra bubble issue and, oh, and yeah, nobody really cares. Oh, yeah, that sounds like the old Peterson days, doesn't it? Ah. <laughs> it really does, yeah. There's nothing yeah, really to see does. here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but look, apart from yeah. that... Um, I can't make any informed comments about, you know, what's happening today, for example, in any given police force. But I can say that it would be impossible for anyone contemplating corruption in the contemporary police forces to to coordinate an operation uh, like these uh, older guys did. It would be uh, physically impossible to to maintain it, to sustain it. I mean, this 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 was where the likes of Lewis and Co. made their biggest mistake. What they did was they kept applying a 1950s template yes. and lowering it over the 60s, lowering it over the 70s. By the 1980s, 80s, it was like this is just not going to not going to stick. I mean, the times have changed. Everything is modernised. It's a more multicultural community. How do you think this old thing is going to work? You know, what do you mean by that? What What exactly do you? What were they doing that was, uh, you know, so old fashioned and wasn't working in the eighties? Well, 80s? the classic, the classic, and and the hubris uh, involved in the eight. They'd got away with it for so many decades that they really didn't care anymore. That you know. We, you know, stand over people, uh, extort people, extort sex workers, uh, bully people around, um, be violent against people. It's not going to play out anymore. It might have in the 1950s and 60s, but it, uh, society had had changed and they had over overlooked the dramatic changes that had taken place around them. I mean, the, 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 the hubris and the ignorance, deliberate ignorance, um, was one of the factors that brought the whole thing down. Also, do you think that they were ignoring their ageing? As you're speaking, it's reminding me of Roger Rogerson. Um, and, you know, in the end, he's gone to jail for murdering Jamie Gow. He and his uh, partner, I can't remember the other man's name. Yeah. You know, Roger's such an old, frail man, and he's murdered this young Asian guy um, over a drug deal. And then, you know, that CCTV footage, they've not even, they've not checked any of that. It's It's just the most clumsy murder. It's the worst crime. It's hopeless. They're, they're captured on CCTV everywhere they go. It, it was um, almost a f- feature movie. I, every, almost every it? act was actually <laughs> captured by a camera. They physically incredible. injured themselves, the pair of them, in the process of doing it, you know. They nearly killed themselves doing it. Um, was it? I think sometimes they, they sort of overestimate themselves physically as well because they're ageing and you know, they're not young bucks I, I anymore. Think, I think that's true. And I think, you know, if if you ignore um, progress and do not keep up with the moment, mm. then you're gonna you're gonna go down. So and and I think that's a that's a perfect sort of um, miniature example of that. And I mean yet I saw Rogerson on a video link in the Whiskey Go Go Inquest just a fortnight ago. Okay, and how's he travelling? Because I heard he had dementia. I heard he was in the dementia wing. He's absolutely wing of the... fine, and he was—he ah. seemed pretty sharp to me. And he was cracking jokes. And oh. um, uh, I don't know whether this was a pun or not, but he was asked to give the oath: "I shall, ta- you know, tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth." Mm. And he said, "I'll tell the truth, 
the whole truth and anything but the truth. Oh, there you go. Oh. And they had, <laughs> it's a bit desperate. They had to pull up proceedings and say, Mr. Rogerson, you're going to have to give the oath again. So um. whether that was him being a comedian, possibly. But I think he, was. he was in total denial of everything in terms of his relationship to the Whiskey Go-Go investigation. Denial, denial, denial. And um, then he was um, excused from the court. End of story. Oh, back to his tea and biscuits. Exactly. Mm. Yeah, those old school crims. I don't think they could they can cope with the kind of technology and stuff like that today. It's just a different way of yeah doing crime. Yeah, absolutely. But but the thing about corruption, I think too, is that even in the recent Victorian Victorian Royal Commission, what we discovered was I think you know the issues that came out in that were certainly initially they they grew out of uh, a real passion to get the job done, and and a lot of that was I think driven by careerism, to mm. be fair. But, you know, it wasn't really around making money or, or sort of, uh, you know, standing over people or, or graft in this Queensland, as, as in this Queensland example. But do you think that there's something inherently about the combination of the human, of, of human nature and power, the kind of power that comes with policing, that ensures that there will always be a misuse of, of that position in society? A great question. And I think if you're dealing in any way, shape or form with human nature, you're going to be dealing with the flaws that are inherent in human nature. Power, it's a cliche, um, for those who, who have a chance to grasp it, can be incredibly intoxicating. Thank you to our guest, Matthew Condon, whose columns you can read in The Australian, whose books you can buy using the link in our show notes, and who you can hear on The Teacher's Trial, the podcast. Thank you to our patrons Donna Waters, Natalie Servinis, Erin, Victoria, Angela Ferguson, Hayley Martin, Rebecca O'Brien and Madeline and Keegan Hobbs. And thank you for downloading this episode of Australian True Crime. Hold up, what was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Recorded at a Hub Australia media studio. HubAustralia.com. Find the workspace that's right for you. This has been another Smartfella production in conjunction with the Acast Creator Network. As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. 
If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well. So, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out.